This is the You Can Learn Chinese podcast. For everyone who's trying to learn Chinese or reaching for the next level, you came to the right place. I am your host, Jared Turner, longtime resident of China, co-founder of the Mandarin Companion Graded Reader Series, and I love eBay. I sold my homing pigeon eight times last month. My co-host is John Pazin, co-founder of Mandarin Companion, founder of All Set Learning, the Chinese grammar wiki, Sinosplice.com, and told me people are making apocalypse jokes like there's no tomorrow. This is the third episode of a four-part series about learning to read Chinese. In this episode, John and I discuss the concept of fluency now, as opposed to some distant time in the future, and how reading will get you there. Guest interview is with Ola Linga of Hacking Chinese and Chinese language enthusiast extraordinaire. All this and more. Let's get to it. Hey guys, this is Jared Turner coming at you from Utah in the United States. Hey guys, I am John Pazden. I am in Shanghai, China. All right, Johnny, we've got part three of our series about learning to read in Chinese. But before we kick into things, we have a few reviews. Okay, so this first review is Apple Podcast Milalalo from Germany. He or she says this podcast is all about how to learn Mandarin Chinese, and I love it. John Pazden and Jared Turner are sharing helpful insights, tips and tricks, and the struggle and stories of other learners. Each episode has an interview with Mandarin Chinese learners at different stages and with different approaches. Also, their Mandarin companion graded readers have been a game changer for me. Keep it up, guys! Awesome. All right, we will, and thanks a lot. Okay, we have another review. It's from Xiaofeng Laoshi. She says, "Totally awesome podcast. Well worth the time. I'm a high school Chinese teacher and agree with your thoughts." And ideas, ninety nine point nine percent. We'll assign this as a listening task for our asynchronous day next week. Looking forward to the rest of the series. Well, thanks so much, Xiaofeng Laoshi. And yeah, John, I did get an email from her, and she was asking for recommendations of podcasts for her students to listen to. And I, of course, since they're high school students here in America, I had to recommend、uh, the episode that we talked about how to pass the AP Chinese test and the HSK. Nice. I bet that was riveting listening for those kids. But evidently, she said they're really enjoying it. Cool. Okay, we do have more reviews.、Uh, this one's from Julesy Bear in Canada, and she says, "Pretty cool. Three stars."、Yeah. Glad to have discovered this podcast. It can feel a little broy at times. For example, I started listening around episode thirty-eight, and I think so far they've interviewed like ten dudes and one woman. I guess not all that surprising, given that the show is run by two guys, but does dampen my own connection to the show a bit. Anyway, there's not much else out there like this, and they seem to put a lot of heart into it. Can recommend their Mandarin Companion series too. All right, thank you, Julesy Bear. I have to mention, I did convince Jared to cancel his boys-only guest rule. So fortunately, you know, we do have some females now. Yeah, what do you have to say about that, Jared? I had to eat my shorts. No, but really, we are looking for more female guests. We would like to, if you happen to be female and have a great story, <laughs> reach out to us. I got to say, John, there is someone I'm reaching out to. She's a musician. She's won a Grammy award. I have a few other guests that I'm trying to get on the show too. So we'll do what we can. Our last review comes from Dennis Getz.、It、says, "Great podcast. I'm slowly working my way up to reading more, but loving your book so far." I think a month ago I could only handle one or two sections a day on my teacher as a Martian, but I was able to read the whole thing through in one sitting this time, and look forward to diving into Boy Sherlock and also have some of your level one books ready to go after that. There are tons of websites for reading, but I found it's too easy to use my, all my digital crutches that way, and it's nice having your printed books to really get the reading experience. 
I also look up stuff multiple times a day on the Grammar Wiki, and I'm slowly making it through all your podcasts, too. Those have been very helpful, so thanks for that. Regards, Dennis. Grammar Wiki. All right. Thanks for letting me know. That's always encouraging. Thanks, Dennis. We really appreciate that. All right. So just to remind you, we are doing a series called How to Learn to Read Chinese. The first episode was about pinyin, characters, vocabulary. The second one was about baby steps to real reading. And now we're talking about developing fluency now. So mm-hmm. we're kind of like in the middle of the series, and where we are basically now is is actually a good place for reading graded readers. So the idea is you have some Chinese foundation. You could just like keep pushing forward into harder and harder material, or maybe you could spend a little time and try to become more fluent in the words and the characters you already know now. So, John, you know, before we kick into this, let me tell you about where I first came across that phrase, fluency now. Sounds like some kind of marketing speak. I was reading a research paper about extensive reading, about how people think, oh, you know, I can be only be fluent, you know, 10 years later, maybe I can be fluent in the language. And it's talking about extensive reading, saying, no, you know, this can make you fluent now in what you know. And it resonated with me. And so ever since, that's something we've been using for Manor Companion. And when you were doing that research back in the day, that was about English graded readers, right? Absolutely. Okay, but it definitely applies. So what I want to talk about today is uh, two different scenarios. There's the scenario where you're like already intermediate level and you feel like graded readers are kind of easy and you're kind of thinking, do I really need to go back and read these easy books? And then there's the other scenario where you're just starting from scratch, you're building your way up and you're just barely at the level of being able to handle a graded reader. So I want to talk about both of these two different scenarios. But before we do, I want to talk about an important idea, which I think of as the textbook bias. If you follow a lot of like China watchers and Sinophiles and stuff, you're probably familiar with this concept of Chinese exceptionalism. The world works this way, but China is different. Hmm. And I often find that kind of annoying. (laughs) It can be used to like refute all kinds of uh, arguments or whatever. Yeah. But when it comes to Chinese... I think it is kind of fair to say that Chinese is a little different from most languages. Oh, I have to agree. Yeah, it's so different than some people feel like they have to create an entire podcast just to tell people, you can learn Chinese, right? (laughs) right. So what the textbook bias is, is like if you go to Chinese in a university, then you're going to be using some kind of textbook to, to learn Chinese. And the way that it typically works is you study like a chapter a week, and every new chapter has new vocabulary and new characters. So you're constantly piling on new characters, and new vocabulary. And the reason for that is because the university has like these goals, like you need to reach a certain level, which means you need to have so many characters under your belt and so many words. And so you're just always pushing. You're never like spending a ton of time consolidating what you already know. You're always trying to add to what you know so that you can reach like this line and the university can be like, yes, they achieved intermediate or advanced or whatever. So We feel comfortable giving them a degree. Yeah, this comes back to some of those things we've discussed in some earlier podcasts about, you know, knowledge versus proficiency, right? And teachers are constantly pushing for that knowledge aspect and trying to measure it from a quantitative standpoint to be able to actually measure how much did you actually know. But as we know, and we're going to get into here, is that doesn't necessarily translate into proficiency or fluency in what you know. Right. And I think we kind of know that. But when it comes to Chinese, I feel like we don't always pay attention. We kind of ignore it. And I think it might be because of this Chinese exceptionalism thing. But I also have two other little theories about maybe why it's happening. I think sometimes we lower the bar because it's characters. I mean, characters are like 
they're hard. And uh, <laughs> when you have to learn all these characters, this is literally something that other people use as a metaphor for impossible to understand, right? Impossible mm -hmm. to read. And when you're piling them on week after week, you kind of tell yourself, look, I'm learning these characters. I think it's okay if I can't read them super fluently because come on, they're characters. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, it's the writing system of a language you're trying to be fluent in. And if you want to be fluent and literate, you do have to be able to read them fluently. So I think that's one of the issues. The other one I think maybe is that there's like this decoding thing going on. So when you're looking at a Chinese sentence written in Chinese characters, you're like, oh, what is this character? Let me analyze it and pull it apart. Oh, yes, I know this component. And and you're kind of decoding the characters. You know, you're like this British archaeologist in a pyramid, like trying to figure <laughs> out these hieroglyphs. You're not even reading, you're decoding. And because you're doing it that way, and, you know, the, the heroes we see on TV always take at least an hour of, of TV to solve a mystery, right? You don't feel like you have to be reading fluently and quickly. I think this textbook bias, you know, we're used to always pushing forward and we're used to not reading quickly because we're always adding new characters all the time. I think this affects both teachers and learners. And some of them fight it, but I think we're all affected by this bias to some degree, which is why we sometimes don't feel like we really need to focus on fluency for the stuff that we can already read fairly easily. John, if we take a look at this from a different angle about a lot of the ways that we do approach this reading in Chinese or even just knowing words and characters, you wouldn't push this method on kids who are going through grade school if they're learning your native language. I mean, you wouldn't be just be like saying, all right, you just need to learn you and it and, you know, history, museum, things like that, and just understand the words individually. You'd be really pushing saying, hey, let's read the books, make sure you can read fluently and be able to use these words in context. But we somehow get a little bit detached from some of that same mindset when we're approaching Chinese. Right, exactly. My son is learning to read now. If he kind of stumbles through a sentence in a book that he's reading, then I'll ask him to read it again, you know, read it more fluently, read it with natural intonation now. We have a certain expectation of fluency. It's his native tongue, but, you know, we want him to read fluently. And so I feel like this textbook bias just negates that for Chinese. And so that's something we want to kind of fight. You know, John, I also have one other theory to add to yours. It comes back to how Chinese is taught in Chinese education system. And as you know, you have kids in that. Mm. The focus on pretty much grades one through five is just acquiring characters. Right. I mean, it's not expected. I mean, until maybe you're like fifth, sixth grade that you're able to now have a good command of reading because you've now consumed and studied and technically learned all the characters. And the system that they have is so effective for those kids on learning the characters, but it takes immense amount of focus and immense amount of time, so much rote memorization and just writing and repeating and things like that. That's kind of some of the mindset that I think that has come over from first language education in Chinese and it's filtered over into the second language education. But those kids in elementary school, they're not just learning characters. They're also speaking in Chinese all day. They're going home and they're reading books and they're seeing TV shows and all that type of stuff. Yeah, I totally agree. So just everybody keep in mind when you're approaching fluency now in Chinese, you have to fight these biases if you, if you want to do a good job. Fight this textbook bias that says that if you can stumble through it and basically recognize all the characters, then it's good enough. And also just fight this urge to always be adding more characters, more, more. Got to catch them all, right? You don't. <laughs> it's like Pokemon.
I said before, we're going to do two different scenarios. So why don't we start with the, with the beginner scenario? So, you know, you've been learning, you, you've mastered your opinion as we recommended. You have slowly built from characters to sentences. And now you're finally to the point where you can read longer stuff, maybe even books. The question is, should you be reading books that don't pose too much challenge or should you just keep pressing on to harder stuff with more characters and more vocabulary? Hmm. Gee, what would be the answer to that one, John? To get fluent, you're going to have to practice. Absolutely. You're going to want to practice stuff at your level. You're going to want to feel fluent. And to give an example of this, I've seen plenty of people at this level, you know, they know the characters, but when they read a sentence, instead of saying knee, they'll say wa. You know, they'll get the pronouns wrong. And these are such basic characters. Of course they know them. It was just a, a simple little mistake. But I think it just shows that they just need more practice and they need to like feel super familiar with all these characters that are so high frequency and so important for their continued development. This is absolutely critical. And I like to bring back the extensive reading framework into this. When we're reading below 90% comprehension, we call that reading pain, roughly 90 to 98% comprehension, that's intensive reading. And above 98% to 100% comprehension, we're looking at extensive reading. If you want to really be like practicing and reviewing, it's best if you can get at that extensive reading level. It's not always possible because of the materials that you might have available in your current level. But we always recommend that you, when possible, try to get at that high level of comprehension uh, when you're reading. Right. So just to be clear, we're also not saying that when you get up to a level where you can read a page of text, then you have to stop everything and just read graded readers for like, you know, two years. It's not like that. It's just something that should be part of your ongoing education. So maybe you are doing the, the textbook push and you're, and you're struggling through the next new chapter. But if you're also working on graded reader content, which is at your level, then you're going to be consolidating and getting fluent at that level. You know, I have a good story about this, John. Once I was invited to go speak at a middle school, doing a bunch of presentations to the different classes, I had a student who had some sort of doctor's appointment. So he came to school late and he missed it. And the teacher said, hey, before you leave, could you go talk to this student and tell me a little bit about what you presented to the rest of the classes? And he was going to be taking this AP Chinese test next year. And so this is an important time for him to make sure he's going to be prepared and to make sure he's going to be at that proper level. So I pull out a greater reader, one of our level ones, and I said, hey, could you read this first page for me? And so he was able to read it. Now, he knew all the characters, but I'm telling you, John, he was like reading like that, that, you know, Li Ye Shuo, Wo Bu Yao Chu Wai Mian. He was reading very halting, a little bit like this. And he had said, oh, I feel good about the test. I feel, you know, I'm going to do just fine on it. I've been studying. I know lots of characters and everything. And after just reading, hearing him read for like 30 seconds, I said, hey, you know a lot. You know all these characters. And that's not going to be the problem. But when you get on that test, you don't have that speed of recognition. What we're talking about is like, when you see that character, you can instantly recall it. It's not something that you have to even take a half a second to say out loud. It's just like, you know, wo, you know, wo yao chu. you know it. You don't have to stop. That speed of recall is really important. And I told this guy, he says, like, you need to really get into reading. And unless you're able to match your proficiency with your knowledge level, I mean, you're going to have a really tough time on the test. You might pass, but you also might not. Yeah, and the crazy thing is that that's kind of normal. So when everyone in your class is in the same boat, you, you feel like, oh, it's fine. But do you want to be fluent or not? 
the comparison to like a native speaker of English learning to read is good. If they're actually sounding out the words as they read a sentence, that is not fluent. No. And you know that when you hear it in English. And, yep. But when you see someone like piecing together the characters and reading them slowly, right, that's not fluent. Yeah, I think that's a great analogy, John. I never thought of it that way. And I, I should put in one other little disclaimer here. Just in case some of you are thinking, man, if I want that kind of recall, how many flashcard reps am I going to have to do? No, no we're not talking about no. flashcard reps. Oh, uh, no. We're talking about high-frequency characters in graded readers. So just reading a lot. We're talking about ni and wo and shi. Like you need to speed those up. You need to get super fluent in those. Glad you brought this up, John, because someone listening might be saying, well, you know, I don't have all that level of fluency in all the think characters I'm encountering. Well, of course you don't, because some of them are new and some of them are still kind of loose in your understanding and, and they're not really solidified yet. But those core characters, those high frequency characters that you see all the time, you should be able to read those quickly and fluently. And maybe you take a little longer on that new character. No, it takes a second to re recall this you know, one you just studied. Yeah, that's OK. That's normal, right? Right. And when we talk about fluency, you really got to discard the flashcards because fluency is about moving quickly from one character to another. Flashcards, even if you're doing words or even if you're doing sentences, you know, they're very small chunks without context. There's no substitute for practicing reading long form texts. You just got to do it. And that's what's going to build your fluency. So just forget about flashcards when we're talking about this. Oh, and John, beyond this, you know, we're talking about, hey, making sure that you're really solidifying and having that instant recall in these high-frequency characters. There is another layer of complexity in Chinese that oftentimes doesn't really get discussed or talked about, and that is parsing the language. And this is a whole other skill which makes Chinese even that more difficult to uh, be able to read fluently. Another case for Chinese exceptionalism, huh? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but, uh, you know, all of you guys who are trying to learn to read or have reading, you know that obviously there's no spaces in between words in Chinese. Um, obviously, we have punctuation and such, but everything's just all together. So that concept of being able to parse that language, be able to instantly recognize what is a word, recognize them as separate chunks of language, so to speak, is a whole nother skill that takes time to develop. And, and this is another important thing that we're talking about, why, why, hey, don't stick around with doing all these flashcards all the time, because you won't learn to be able to parse well without really seeing them in context and seeing those sentences and, and having that exposure to the language over and over again. Yeah. So if you're doing sentences in your flashcards, you will learn to parse those sentences, but that's not enough. You need to see lots of new sentences. That's what extensive reading is going to let you do. Absolutely. It's something that people usually don't talk about and teachers frequently don't think about it. But that's something that's very important for you to a skill to develop. And that's also one reason why new readers sometimes can also get very tired reading Chinese because it's like, oh, it's creating a lot of strain on your brain. Like, oh, what's the pronunciation? What's the tone? What's the meaning? And what's a word? Right? <laughs> How is this all split up in my head? And so it just adds one more layer of complexity. Oh, Chinese. So God. classic. That's why we love you. Stop it, Chinese. All right, so we just mentioned the first of two scenarios, the one where you're building your way up and you're considering whether or not to spend more time on this lower level graded reader material. And of course, your answer is yes, you are going to do that because you want to build fluency now. But there's a lot of other people who, you know, they went through maybe the typical textbook formal education. They've made it to like a 
intermediate, HSK3, HSK4, whatever level. And they're realizing that they're not that good at reading and they never read that much when they were at a lower level. And they're starting to think, maybe there's something to this extensive reading thing. Maybe I should read more at a lower level, even though my textbook biases, I need to be constantly building the characters and the vocabulary. So this next part, we're going to talk to you guys, the ones who are thinking about maybe reading at something that you feel is below your level. Well, I run across these people all the time when I'm in China, Shanghai, that have that high level of spoken Chinese. And they say, you know, all I know like 3,000 characters, but they're actually, you know, I, I know a lot of characters. I'm like, well, how's your reading? Like, oh, it's kind of slow. And I'm like, all right. And I do recommend to people say, hey, look, the big thing is we can come back to that concept of reading speed. Right? If, if you know 5,000 characters, but you're reading haltingly or you're slow, it's not fluent, then yeah, absolutely. Drop down to some simple, easier graded readers and get to work. And I like to look at it another way. You know, you're, you're kind of saying like, oh, you need this. You're not good enough to put it in a really negative way. But uh, to put it in a positive way, your Chinese has come a long way. You've learned so many characters and so many words. Why don't you now use that to read something that you can enjoy? Mm. And instead of like deciphering sentence by sentence, this massive puzzle, this wall of text, why don't you actually enjoy it because you can understand it without too much effort? Because I think it's really not fair that people that learn Chinese, they have to learn it for like five years or something before they can read a, an actual book. That's super demotivating. And I, I always found it super motivating for myself, for lots of people. But you know you've come a long way, and now you can actually read something without much effort and enjoy the fruits of your labor. Absolutely. And, and I think that's part of the problem, too, of people who might be in that boat is they just haven't found anything interesting, anything exciting, anything they want to read. There's always that saying of like, oh, I want to be able to learn Chinese well enough that I can read the newspaper. But I always ask, well, do you read the newspaper in English? <laughs> and usually the answer is, oh, uh, no, not really. And I'm like, well, why do you want to read it in Chinese? So, you know, if you are learning to read and you want to be able to read even a higher level or you are a higher level, let's focus on some engaging, interesting books or material that you want to read that is obtainable or accessible to you at your level. Yeah, and the nice thing about it is besides knowing the characters already and knowing the vocabulary already when you're reading, you know, it's something that you feel like is a little below your level. The parsing as well. Like you discover how good you are at parsing because the words are so familiar. And so then the reading speed really kicks up and practicing at a higher reading speed for something that's pretty familiar in terms of language, it really does carry over to higher levels. Oh, absolutely. I just love that whole concept even of reading speed, John. It's just like when people get into it and they're like, oh, I'm slow, like read a book. If you have a slow reading speed and you get down one graded reader or one something of length at your level, you see a tangible improvement and you feel it. Yeah, that's something you can try for yourself. If you're like an intermediate level, try reading something that's hard and see how long it takes you to get through one page. You know, know how many characters it is. And then try something lower level, which is not insultingly low, but pretty low, where you don't read it super fluently, super fast, but it's still easy. And uh, compare and then practice and see how those numbers go up. It's also super motivating to see the lower level texts just getting faster and faster, whereas the higher level texts, they're just always slow. And the great thing about this is that this translates directly into what we're talking about of fluency now. 
I mean, if you're reading quickly at whatever level you're reading at, then whatever you're reading, that level you're reading at, you'll be able to like speak much more fluently at that level. And you'll be able to understand all those things that you're reading at a much higher level. So it's like it filters through to everything. It almost is like magical. It almost feels like you're cheating on a test because, and the research behind extensive reading shows this, is that if you just read in the language at a high level of comprehension, it will improve your speaking, listening, and writing. Yeah. And so remember, if you're working on fluency now, um, it is going to help your speaking, your listening. But if you're working on something which is like a graded reader, you know, 98% comprehension, that's not going to have a lot of new vocabulary. So it might not feel like it's at your level, but it actually is going to improve the fluency that is at the level that you're pushing for. I mean, you do have to stick with that a little bit to feel the results. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. It's a great feeling. Whatever level you are, find that content that's comprehensible to you and just start consuming it. Start reading. Get into it. You're going to get fluent now. Go for it, guys. Just make sure it's at the right level. Get reading. All right. Now it's time for a word from our sponsor. And our sponsor is... Instagram account. Well, what are we calling this? Our Mandarin <laughs> Companion Instagram account with memes. That's right. It called, Jared? <laughs> it's our Instagram meme account. It's also on Facebook. It also have on Twitter. So this is not a source of extensive reading or graded reader material. Is that correct? It is not. It's a good source of humor and a little bit of break from the day. Uh, you wake up every morning and you can find a meme uh, that we publish every day on our Instagram or Facebook page. And they're funny. And if you're tired of people telling you that, oh, Chinese is so easy, then I think you'll get a chuckle from these memes because there is quite a bit of commiserating about how Chinese can be <laughs> a tad challenging at times. If you enjoy memes, you like memes, Go check it out right now. Just go to Instagram or Facebook, search for Mandarin Companion, and click follow. And we're not on TikTok, but I've been thinking about it, John. Maybe we should start making some videos for TikTok. We? Oui. Okay, me. I make this stuff, right? But maybe, All right. There you go, Jared. Maybe All you right, can help. I support you. <laughs> Fully support you, Jared. I'll go back to editing our new books, all right? Thanks, John. I appreciate you. Appreciate your support. No now it's time for rants or raves. John, what do you got for us? A rant or a rave? All right, I got a weird rave. I've been doing a lot of discussions recently. They were around marketing. What is marketing? Well, it's telling people about your product and selling it to them, right? Actually, no. What marketing gurus will tell you is that marketing is about building relationships mm -hmm. with people who might not even know what you do or why you do it. And one of the cool things about marketing is that with a medium like podcasts, it has this unique aspect, which has been called parasocial relationship. Hmm. So your listeners feel like they get to know you because they listen to you all the time. They get a sense of your personality and your quirks and all that, but they don't actually know you. And if you ever meet them, you don't know them at all. They're a total stranger, but they feel like they know you. Hmm. So it's like this really weird one-sided thing. But when these people do get in touch, it can make some really cool connections. So, you know, we have people writing in about the podcast, about graded readers and what teachers are doing in their classrooms. So I don't know. I'm, I'm just feeling I'm just feeling oddly grateful for marketing, for this thing that is podcast and for all these connections it's helping us make. You know, I feel the same way, John. 
I love getting those emails from our readers. And sometimes they feel like they know us and they're open up to us about their life and what's going on about learning Chinese. And it's great. All right. So you got a rant or a rave? I have got a rant. And uh, my, my rant is this. Uh, okay. I spend time on social media. <laughs> I enjoy Reddit. I post some of our memes and I make comments on the Chinese language subreddit. One of my rants is that like all the time, it's like people are posting like writing characters. They're like, oh, I just started learning Chinese. How are my characters? Are they good? My rant about it, it creates this perception that this is how you need to learn Chinese. Like, because someone writes characters and look real beautiful. and Oh, I've only been learning Chinese for a month. Then it's this thing. Oh, I need to start writing too. And I, all these comments and stuff. Oh, these are beautiful. Oh, I've spent thousands of hours learning to write characters. And it's a little bit frustrating. And maybe I should create some Reddit thread just, you know, talking and say, hey, guys, everyone who's like showing pictures about writing. I mean, that's great. But I think it's important to know that this is not critical to learning Chinese. I do not recommend you spend all this time learning to write characters fluently. Write some characters? Sure. Yes. Learn the concept. Learn to write some characters. That's a great thing to do. But don't make that the core of your learning in Chinese because, gosh, there's so much better ways to learn. Those people on Reddit can be kind of harsh. If you want to support poor little Jared, we will be grateful for it. <laughs> it's true. Sometimes I pub like I post like good advice and it's like downvote city. Not not exactly. But. Downvote. I looked at your bio and you have a company that helps people learn Chinese, which automatically makes you suspect and downvoted. Oh, that's highly suspect. Bam. Okay, John, guess who we got for our interview today? You ranted about him last episode. Does he also pronounce his name for us? He does. And I'll continue to say it wrong. <laughs> you don't want to miss that. Yeah, just like you say Sinosplice instead of Sinosplice. That's Jared's thing. I'm getting better. All right, let's do this interview. I'm getting better. So my name is Ulle Linge. That's how I pronounce it. Although everybody gets it wrong, so... <laughs> I've always pronounced his name wrong. And as of today, I've only become marginally better. I'm in Stockholm, Sweden. I'm probably most well-known for hacking Chinese. We've been trying to get Ola on the podcast for a while, and after listening to his interview, I'm sure you'll know why. Stay with us. Why did you start learning Chinese? For me, it's mostly an accident. I started to have some kind of interest in China from philosophy or from practicing Tai Chi Quan or Tai Chi. That's when I was in upper secondary school. I had a few friends who were interested in Japanese and they studied Japanese. And one, of, one day, one of them said to me, hey, do you know that they have a Chinese program now at the university where you can study like only Chinese language and culture? So I thought I had to give it a try. And so I did. Were you in college at the time? Or Yes. And then my teacher said, hey, there's a scholarship here. Maybe someone wants to apply. I mean, I cannot turn down a scholarship to study abroad for a year where basically everything is paid. I went to Taiwan for a year. I stayed another year. I went back to Sweden to finish my teacher's degree. And Chinese, you never feel it's enough. So I went back to Taiwan for two years and a master's program in teaching Chinese as a second language. Well, I want to hear a few more details about this because, all right, you gave me a great travel log, you know, boring. But what really happened in there, right? You said, hey, let's go to Taiwan. What was it like? No, it was a big, a big change for me. I had been traveling a bit, but not much on my own and certainly not to Asia. And I hadn't even moved outside of the city. I'm a kind of introverted person. 
I'm not un- uncomfortable talking to people. It's just that I don't really derive much pleasure from randomly chatting with people I don't know. How long have you been studying before you went to Taiwan? Uh, about a year. Okay, but that's university level, right? And we kind of know that that can have mixed results, right? Yeah, so it was a pretty good program. It's also a program that I do teach in right now, so I'm a bit biased maybe. But it's good in the sense that it is quite practical. And people tend to, mm. nowadays at least, speak fairly well when they've studied their first year. And they're not doing lots of other things. We're not talking about like an extra thing here. We're talking about people studying almost full-time for a year. But it's still formal education, and formal education in Sweden and everywhere else, essentially, is pretty much geared towards theoretical things. They say that speaking is important, but when it comes to the exams, it's still you know, written exams. So you can have a pretty good theoretical understanding of a language and get really good grades, but you might not necessarily be able to use all that. And that's a pity because most people don't really do much more than that. So you have this theoretical knowledge and you don't have any opportunity to really turn it into actual proficiency. Fortunately, I actually went to Taiwan and was able to convert all this knowledge because obviously you learn a lot of things. I knew lots of words, I knew grammar, I knew characters. But, you know, I hadn't had this mass exposure and being forced to talk about things I couldn't talk about. So I hadn't really activated any of that back then. But once I arrived, it went pretty fast. So I remember arriving and struggling to tell a friend that I live like in that building behind there or behind that building over there Mm -hmm. and found that hard to kind of come up with. Mm. Now, I know, I mean, all the words, no problem. So it wasn't like... I cannot say this. It's just that it took me like 20 seconds to come up with a sentence. And then it takes just a few months and then you can kind of speak with people. And I think that's hard to do if you don't have any kind of vocabulary with you when you go. So I, this is a good perspective I think you could offer, right? Because you're, you're involved in teacher training, essentially. And there's a lot of people listening who are going through, could be you know, different schooling programs or education programs. What kind of advice would you give to someone saying, hey, you know, they can't change the curriculum. What did you do? And what would you tell people to do, say, hey, to get most out of what you're learning in the classroom? There are many answers here, but I should point out that when I did this, I did not know what I was supposed to do. So I did not do the right things. So tell me what not to do. Yeah. So the first thing is that you shouldn't trust your curriculum. (laughs) Many people just go to a school and they think that, okay, if I just do what the teacher and the textbook and the curriculum, what they tell me, I will reach my goals and everybody will live happily ever after. But it's not like that. No curriculum is perfect. And most of them are actually quite bad, depending on what your goal is. Like I said, most formal education is geared towards written proficiency, for example. I think we had one oral exam in the first year. I mean, we spoke Chinese during lessons. We did that. So I'm not saying we only focused on written Chinese. That wasn't the case. But there are so many things that are left out. And if you think that your teacher is going to spoon feed you everything you need, you will be disappointed. And at some point you will realize, hey, maybe I should have done this much, much earlier. Why didn't anybody tell me? And I can... To bring up two examples here. One is pronunciation. If you're in a serious program, people spend a week teaching you pinyin, teaching you tones, and they never touch it again. Mm-hmm. If you're lucky, someone might correct you occasionally, but I've worked with helping students fix their pronunciation a long time. And there are so many people who have studied Chinese for years and they still have very, very basic problems with tones, for example. And usually it's just that they have no clue, they don't know. 
They don't know that the third tone is a low tone because no one told them and no one corrected them. And I know this because no one corrected me. I had a problem with the third tone for the first two years, and it took about a year and a half before someone even mentioned it. And of course, I can be, you know, grumpy and say, hey, why didn't anybody tell me about this? (laughs) And that's, that's true in a sense. Like, you should be able to count on your teachers to point out glaring problems with your pronunciation. But that's not the way it is. And I'm the one learning the language. So if I end up with bad pronunciation, sure, I can blame other people, but that's not very helpful. And I can't tell, like you asked me what the recommendation is for people who are in enrolled in programs. And the, it's not to blame your teachers. The lesson to be learned here is that you're the one learning the language, you take responsibility, and you make sure that you're learning the things that are important to you. And sometimes this aligns very well with the curriculum. It could be that it's maybe 90% of the things you want are in the curriculum. Maybe it's 10%. And this is kind of the first advice then. So take a look at your curriculum and also not, not just a theoretical curriculum, what it says that the teacher should do, but also what is actually done in class. Mm-hmm. And then you figure, okay, so what are the things I should be able to do or that I hear many people recommend that I do, but that is not in my curriculum? And how do I go about making sure that I learn these things? Well, I, I really like that. So there's some good things, what not to do, right? <laughs> okay. Don't just take everything at face value, I guess, is, you know, maybe don't trust everything that you're seeing and, and maybe take some responsibility and look into it for yourself. What are some other mistakes and then best practices that you've come across? Another common problem is lack of real actual communication in the language. And when I say real communication, I refer to what's known as some kind of information gap in task-based, say, language teaching. And that essentially means that when you're talking to someone, there needs to be a genuine gap in knowledge. So if you know something that I don't know, and I know something you don't know, and we talk about it in Chinese, we have a genuine exchange of information. But there's a lot Mm -hmm. of classroom practices which are not like that. If you think back to how you maybe studied languages in school, there's a lot of drills. There's a lot of reading dialogues in textbooks. Maybe you even write a dialogue. Like you ask your friend, what's your name and how old are you? And you know, you've been going to school with this guy for like five years. You know what his name is. You know how old (laughs) he is. You know where he lives. So these are not real questions. They are just rehearsal, essentially. They're contrived. Yes, exactly. I mean, obviously, this is, if you live in a Chinese-speaking environment, this kind of happens automatically because when you're outside and things happen, you need to communicate with people. I mean, you need to find the milk at the store if you're going to buy it. And if you can't ask for it and you can't find it, you don't get any milk, right? But when you're studying in your home country, it's easy to get into this, I'm just doing my textbook, I'm doing my grammar exercises, I'm practicing the dialogue and so on. Those things are all useful. But if you don't pair it with some kind of actual communication, the problem is that you don't get any feedback. And when I say feedback here, I mean you don't get any any information about whether or not what you're saying makes sense, if other people can understand it, if your pronunciation is okay, and so on and so forth. You don't learn all these valuable strategies for, say, clarification, learning to say, and things like that. I mean, okay, Timbodong, mm-hmm. maybe people learn it anyway. But you know what I mean. <laughs> How do you say this yeah. in Chinese? You, different strategies for making a conversation flow and work in real life. You don't really practice these things if you only stick to things that can't really be counted as 
real communication, as it were. And this can, of course, be simulated. There are lots of things that you don't know about people you go to school with. So you can just make sure that you talk to people about things that you actually want to talk about, that actually contain something new or something interesting. I really like how you frame that, Ula, as, as an information gap. We always talk about greater readers, of course, and I like that because literature, you know, when we get into like, you know, information gap, it could be something I read and you didn't read. Mm-hmm. It can also be about opinions. Maybe you don't know what my opinion sure. or my view is on a certain subject or a character. And it gives, you know, some real opportunity for real exchange of information. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, maybe another thing to add here is that, of course, if you can do this with a Chinese-speaking person and not your friend, it has the added benefit that you get the feeling that this is for real. Because you always have this simulation feeling when you're learning languages in school, or many students have that, that you're learning this in the classroom, but there are like more than a billion people who actually use this language. And it doesn't feel like that when you're in the classroom and you only have your teacher, you only have your textbook, you only have your friends. So looking for these communication opportunities outside of the classroom much earlier than I did, for example. I didn't speak to more than one or two native speakers of Chinese the first year. Whereas nowadays, in the same program, they arrange conversation corners where exchange students who speak Chinese hook up with Swedish students, and they practice Chinese a lot. And they do that from like week one. So I also want to hear about this. You were in Taiwan. At what stage did you decide, hey, you know, I want to really do something serious with Chinese? It was probably a gradual thing. Studying for one year in Sweden, that was just something I did out of interest. It had no serious consequences in itself. I could have stopped after a year. When I got the scholarship, I felt that was pretty much I had to do it, even if it was just for fun, for a year. I think the first serious decision was to stay a second year, because then I didn't have a scholarship, so I had to pay myself. And also it was, I mean, another year, two years abroad is quite a lot if you're not going to do anything with it later. I think the real commitment was to start the master's program because that took another two years. And it's a lot of time and a lot of investment in general in terms of energy spent and so on. And I think that once I reached the level I was at when I came home from Taiwan the first time, i.e. after two years, I felt that So I've learned Chinese to this level where it's kind of, I can talk with people, I can do most of the things I want, I can read books and and so on. But what now? Like, what do you do with that? Mm. And for some people, if you're in business or if you're in some other trade, whatever it is, you can probably combine Chinese in some way. You might be able to find a Chinese company that works where you live or, you know, something like that. And you can find some angle where Chinese can become useful, even if you just have a little bit of it. But if you only have Chinese, That doesn't work. You need to find some other line of business to combine it with, I would say. And so that's why I decided to, okay, let's go all in then, keep going. And of course, basically the only options, I mean, you can teach, like I said, you can maybe do translation interpretation. I've done a limited amount of translation. It's not really what I want to do. So teaching for me is Mm. the perfect thing because it's not something I do as a kind of last resort, like I couldn't find anything else, so I'm teaching. I chose teaching before I chose Chinese. So during your experience of just like learning Chinese, you know, I want to hear a little bit about, you know, some of those breakthrough moments in learning Chinese. After I lived in Taiwan for must have been three months. So my parents came to visit. I remember then clearly, of course, coming to Taiwan and not really being able to say much. But then we traveled around the island and then I had to speak with all people. I had to call the taxi. I had to check the timetables. I had to book trains. I had to do all these things. No one spoke any English. And that was maybe 
a moment where I felt that, okay, I mean, I can kind of handle myself. It kind of works. I know that you started Hacking Chinese. That's, I think, how we first ever gotten in touch. But Hacking Chinese, you've written a lot of articles about learning Chinese. And I wanted to know, what are some real more common you know, questions that you have found through your experience that learners have about learning Chinese? And maybe where are some of those more common misconceptions of even about the language? Uh, I founded Hacking Chinese in 2010, so after getting back from Taiwan. And I've written since then, so we are talking about roughly 400 articles that are actual content. And of course, I do get a lot of questions, but then there are some misconceptions about the language. Like there are a couple of things that people get wrong that have pretty serious consequences. Yes, it's not like people are getting injured or anything, but but it does it does <laughs> yeah. have some consequences for people. Life or death. <laughs> so I would say there are two things. One is about characters, and one is about pronunciation. So the character bit is that it's amazing how little people talk about phonetic components or the role of sound in Chinese characters. And it took me years before. I really like, you know, understood what was going on. And for those of you who maybe might have not studied Chinese for so long, basically all characters you learn after the beginner stages are composed of one part that gives the sound and one part that gives the meaning. And the normal way that people learn characters is that they think that everything is meaning. So if you learn the character mm. for, say, mother, ma, it has a woman radical, and you have a, another component, which is a horse, right? And people, you know, you think, okay, horse, woman, mother makes sense. It doesn't, but, but you know, that's <laughs> no, what, and people just... Your mom's a horse! <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and people, you know, the ancient Chinese. But then when you list them, and you can do this with students, you just list characters that they have learned. Like, you take ma, 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 the ma, you take hao ma, the ma, you take, well, you take horse, ma, as well, and you take maybe ma, the question particle, Maybe ma and ma or something. Mm -hmm. And then you tell them, okay, so what do these have in common? And they say, yeah, okay, okay, they have ma in them, yes. What else do they have in common? Okay, they're kind of pronounced the same way. Okay, why do you think this is the case? And of course, they look that way because how they are pronounced. They do not look like that because the concept of horse is related to any of these other concepts. It's not, right? It's amazing how that some people can study Chinese for quite long without realizing this. And that includes myself. And then when you look back at these series and you see like, how can you not notice that this is a sound thing? So so that would be the character thing that I think is the misconception. Either people think that Chinese characters are pictures and some kind of extension of that is, if it's not pictures, at least it's, you know, combinations of meanings that once were pictures. That's not how Chinese works. And, And if you have that, you will miss so much and it will be so much harder than it needs to be. And things will be very confusing as well. So what you're kind of saying is that a lot of learners, they may not understand the different components, which we say components. Some people will use the word radicals, which is actually not entirely correct. But, you know, the different components and maybe not understand the different meanings of different components and also sounds that different components can give. Yeah, exactly. So people, they understand that there are components but they only think of them in terms of what they mean, not of how they are pronounced. So that they are not carrying yeah. the function of the components, as it were. That doesn't hold up every time, right? But, you know, it's definitely a great indication, right? If you come across some characters and it can give you like yeah. that hint, you know, to, to, oh, yeah, that's how you say it. Yeah. And sometimes when you write characters, the only reason I know how to write it is because I know it's probably this or this phonetic component. And if you have a binary choice between A or B, I mean, I'm not saying you're guessing, but it's easier to remember if it's this or this than anything whatsoever, because it could have been anything whatsoever if it wasn't for the sound. 
And then, of course, you also have people who go the opposite route and think that Chinese is just an alphabet. But I mean, no one who studies Chinese thinks it's an alphabet. I think. Yeah, yeah. Except the tattoo parlor. You know, <laughs> like yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so the other misconception is about the third tone. So the third tone is, in most cases, a low tone, mm-hmm. and it's always taught as a falling rising tone. So it's always taught ma. That's how it's taught by 99% of teachers and 99% of textbooks. So the problem here is, of course, that it's very rarely pronounced ma. Sometimes when people mm-hmm. stress a syllable a lot, like I want to say then maybe you can do mm-hmm. that. But normally you don't stress syllables that heavily and you don't say them in isolation either. And many native speakers, even if they say the third tone in isolation or at the end of sentences, they still don't go up at the end. And you definitely don't have mm-hmm. to do it. So the thing is, if you approach this from this angle, you say it's a low tone, and then you just teach people that, okay, if you have two low tones in a row, that's super hard to say, and that's true. Try saying like, ni hao. It's really hard. It's, it's a strange. <laughs> yeah. You can feel in your, your throat that it's not <laughs> healthy for you. And of course, then you change the first one, ni hao. Okay, good. And then you're done in terms of tone sandi. You don't have to teach anymore, and it's very simple. You just low, and when you have too low, you go up on the first. Super easy. If you teach it as a low, like a falling rising tone, you have to then also tell students that, oh, by the way, if it comes before a first, second, or fourth tone, it turns into a low tone. Then if it comes before a third tone, it turns into a rising tone. And then occasionally, once in a blue moon, if all the planets are aligned, it's actually pronounced as a third, like as a falling rising tone. Yeah. <laughs> and that means that these poor students, they have to apply all these rules live when they speak in every single word. There is no word that is the default case, except if you say an isolated number, maybe. Ooh. Okay, then people usually mm-hmm. actually do the falling rising thing. So I think uh, a lot of pain has been caused students by teaching it and not realizing that it is a low tone. And for you Americans, you know, how many Americans have you heard that say mei guo? I usually hear mei guo. <laughs> they turn it somehow first, you know. They, But yeah, it gets, it gets slaughtered. You know, in fact, this very thing is something I have first realized in reading one of John's articles on Sinosplice years ago before we even met. And I was screwing up that all the time. I mean, I've done a lot of analysis and I've taken tons of courses in Chinese phonetics and acoustic phonetics and so on. And we've analyzed a very large number of student pronunciations. And this third, second tone, I think, is the hardest one for most people. It's the hardest. It is. John did his master's thesis on tones. And that's what he found was the third, second tone was also Yeah, the and that's not surprising. But let's, let's actually take this opportunity to teach people how it's supposed to be. <laughs> so it's supposed to be a low tone followed by a rising tone. So I normally when I teach, I don't use the numbers. I mean, I have a very good grasp of the numbers when it comes to the tones. It doesn't matter if you yeah. say fourth tone or falling tone. I know what you mean. But for a beginner, there is this extra layer. They have to think fourth tone. Which one was that? So it's supposed to be a low tone followed by a rising tone. So mei guo, mei guo. And you don't mm-hmm. go up. You don't say mei guo, which is what I said to Jared just about a few seconds back. You start low and you go down a little bit, but you just think of it as a low tone, it's fine. And then you rise on the second one. So mei guo. Mei guo, yes. And the problem is that there is a lot of analysis in like how students or non-native speakers perceive tones. 
And it turns out that this rising bit in the dipping tone has much more salience than the low part. So what students hear when you say ma or mei is the rising part at the end. Mm. But we know that it's not the rising part that is the key ingredient in the third tone. It is the low part. If you don't have the low part, it's not a third tone. I mean, unless we have, you know, like we said, ni hao before. But if you don't have the rising part at the end, that's fine. That's not the crucial bit. So students tend to focus on the wrong part and they get it into a, usually a second tone, they might say. Like we said, mei guo with two rising tones. Got it. Well, xie lao shi. So this is definitely helpful. Once I learned that, game changer. Everything sounds better. And it's easier to say, too. Yeah, it's much easier. All right, so I'd like to hear from you. Is there anything like specifically about like reading? You know, because you say you've learned to read books and everything, but like some mistakes or some advice you'd give to learners about learning to read in Chinese. Yeah, actually, there is one thing that I could say that is a good uh, way to promote your Mandarin Companion Graded Reader series, actually. That's a great series, I've heard. You should maybe maybe read it someday. <laughs> so anyway, when I started learning Chinese, I did the, you know, you've heard people do this. They just pick random text and they start reading it. Newspaper article or some book you find or something. And what I see many people do, and that I did too, is that you read few texts and you spend an awful lot of time per book or whatever it is you're reading. So you spend these like 50 hours reading two pages in a very hard book. Whereas you could have spent all those 50 hours reading 10 different books that covers, you know, 50,000 characters. And of course, not 50,000 unique characters, you're just reading more and more of things that you can actually make sense of. And because it's so easy for you compared to reading, say, a newspaper article or something like that. I mean, you think, I mean, why not? I, I can do it, like one word at a time. And the answer is no, you can't. I mean, yes, you can, but it takes a hundred times longer than it takes to read a graded reader. And you learn one hundredth mm. as much. Yeah. <laughs> and I will give an example, and that is children's books. And most people who try that know that it's a bad idea, at least afterwards. I have some data here because I bought a book that had like mm, characters the size of my thumb in them. You know, you look at it, <laughs> and this was when I studied Chinese for like be a year. Easy, right? It just must be so easy, right? So I added all these words into Anki, and I actually pulled them out. You know, maybe five years later, just for fun, and I said, "Oh, wait a second! Oh, here are all these words." And the funny thing is that most of these words I still have not seen used in other situations. Wow. And some wow. of them are just outright formal. It's like you have this completely different mindset where children's literature is about educating kids and not about enjoyable reading, right? Well, I want to hear now, if you could go back and you could do it all over again, what one big thing would you have changed? I would have encourage myself to communicate with native speakers earlier, not because you have to do that, but because it offers you valuable feedback in terms of pronunciation. Does what I say here make sense? Do people understand me? Do I understand others? The reason why this type of feedback is useful, it's not like, okay, I realized I did something wrong, I can fix it. That's also very good. But I think the most important thing with getting this kind of feedback from real people is that it can guide your studying in general. Like you realize, okay, I'm not very good at listening, or I have a problem with 
writing, or I'm not very good at this type of vocabulary or something. And this then can guide your studying and also motivate your studying, because then you have a very natural reason for spending all these hours we're talking about here. So it gives you both information about what to do, but it also gives you motivation for doing these things, because you're doing it for like a real-world reason, not because it's written in some curriculum or something. You know, that underscores a theme that I have seen in all interviews that I've done for this podcast. And it's simply that everyone has to have their own reason for learning, their own motivation. And some people might be passing that test and getting a grade, but other people, maybe it's that, hey, I want to communicate or I need this for my job. You know, there's all sorts of reasons, mm-hmm. but you got to have one. Yeah. And, and also you can actively try to find one. Yeah. Yeah. I think you kind of have to have some kind of larger purpose for learning Chinese. It's hard to maintain a kind of, ah, oh, it's kind of interesting. I like doing this for, for a very long time. And I think most people who have reached an advanced level have found some motivation that really works for them. If you're struggling against yourself to actually get yourself to do this, it's not going to work out. You might be able to do that for a limited amount of time, but uh, in the long run, uh, you need some stronger motivation to, to keep going. Absolutely. I think it's worthwhile to also point out that it's okay in the beginning if you have no clue. I started learning Chinese with no motivation to do anything with it. And then gradually, of course, along the way, you discover why it is you want to do this thing. Otherwise, you quit, probably. That's fine. You can do other things. Not everybody has to dedicate their whole life to learning Chinese, right? Well, Ola, this has been great. Now, tell us just a little bit about some of the projects, the things that you're working on right now, and where people can find you. So Hacking Chinese is an ongoing project. I I keep writing things there. I launched a kind of podcast. It's not as ambitious as this one. I intend to interview people later on, but right now it's more like me talking about stuff and uh, old article content and so on. I also work with Scritter, and this is not really official yet, but we will have some kind of character course coming out, and that will be largely, at least pedagogically, my design. I also work on some text games for Wordswing. Ah, yes. Yeah, we haven't talked about this, but it's a little bit like Mandarin Companion, actually. It's like a choose-your-own-adventure almost, right? Yeah, exactly. So you're presented with choices, and you make choices, and the game develops according to what you do. If you decide to bribe the guard, go to page 65. And of course, we build in things that sometimes you have choices that are obviously stupid if you can read. If you read and understand everything, you know that doing A here is really bad. Do you jump into the empty mine shaft? Yes or no? Yeah, exactly. There are lots of questions like that. And that's just basic reading comprehension. But then beyond that, of course, there are other choices you can make. And one of the games are completely free. Uh, It's called Escape. And it's not as controlled in terms of graded content as the Mandarin Companion series, because when we started out, we weren't as serious with that. So it has a little bit of vocabulary all over the place, a little bit more difficult than it ought to be. But I would say HSK 2.3 can have a go. Ola, and I guess we can all find you at hackingchinese.com as well. I appreciate Ola taking the time to be here on our podcast and share your wisdom and experience with us. Thanks for having me. You have been listening to the You Can Learn Chinese podcast. Help us spread the word by sharing this with your friends, classmates, teachers, cousins, twinner, septuagenarian, horse rider, pancake stacker, leaf raker, pumpkin carver, skeleton, gold, ghost, goblin, and that one guy named Lloyd. You can subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And please write us a review so we know how we're doing. You can find us on Facebook and at mannercompanion.com. If you feel like you've got an interesting story to tell about learning Chinese, reach out to us. If we're desperate enough, we just might get you on the podcast. Apologies to John Cena, we just ran out of time. 
You Can Learn Chinese Podcast is produced by myself, Jared Turner, and our editor is James Harper with Filter Productions. And I'd like to thank our guest, Ola Linga. And of course, thanks to my co-host, the man, the myth, the legend, John Passon. See you next time.